maze experts Always know what's best Always tell you what you should have done My maze experts Always know what's cooking How the game was lost And how it could have been won Evening sports fans, uh, I'm Jack Bannister, I'm here in the People's Republic of Northcote and with me is a man with far too many last names, um, it's Gordon Hunter Meredith and we're going to record the first edition of the People's Game, um, which is going to be an ongoing ongoing project throughout the year. We've just uh, arrived back in the People's Republic from Princess Park where we've witnessed Carlton get over the top of Collingwood to open the AFLW season. Gordon. Yes, indeed. It was uh, an interesting game. In many ways, a game that we expected to play out the way it did. I think, and we'll get on to it obviously later from the pod, but I think some of the questions we had about the state of AFLW coming into round one have, have been left mostly unanswered or with the same questions that we had last year. Um, but, you know, it was a, a good night out. It was a, a fairly competitive contest and very ferocious one. We saw a, a, a report the first weeks of the year will be given out by the People's Republic of Umpires. Which so that's I like nice early to see. in the season. Let's get yeah. some weeks in very quickly. Indeed. Um, of course, the end score was Carlton 34-22 to Collingwood 2-2-14. Um, Taylor Harris, for me, was the star of the night, but um, we'll just sort of focus on the occasion to start with and um, sort of represents a bit of a changing in the the footballing calendar. Um, traditionally, we've opened with Richmond and Carlton at the MCG on a Thursday night. Um, and as Kirby Fenwick captured in her little audio documentary uh, the first Friday in February, that scene is completely changed. Um, it's a scene that John Harms wrote about in the 07 edition of the Footy Almanac, um, where he talks about the umpire holding the ball aloft and becoming the centre of the universe, possibly for the only time in the season, for a positive reason. And that moment now does not feature gangly seven-foot-two male ruckman, but tonight it was Bree Moody and Emma King, and um, it represents a, a wonderful new way for the footy footy season to return none to our conscious, Gordon Hunter-Meredith. Yeah, definitely. I think... Again, the question most around it was, would we live up to the hype of last year? We had the, the infamous lockout, uh, obviously, you know, and the AFL CEO there, you know, shaking hands with the public and letting them know that, I'm sorry, but, you know, you won't be watching the football tonight. We'll get onto that as well later on. Um, but, yeah, it is, it is nice to see legitimate football back earlier. Obviously, you know, it's, it's, a, long, it's a long time between drinks between that very eventful day in October through to, through to now. It's been a very long and tedious couple of months of you I know I don't think it's been tedious to be honest oh, it's been tedious it's been in the enjoyable. sense of all you all you get is you know uh, X player has run the fastest time trial but not post the time uh, old man's going to play way more minutes in the midfield and so now we've actually got proper football to talk about or, which is always or nice or you could just and I've considered doing this for this season but instead I've decided to watch football and do a podcast about it um, I had a mind to just watch last season on repeat this season and just forget that 2018 was a year and just relive 2017. And there was a chance that I'd do that over and over again and the game would be stuck in a time warp. However, I'm, I'm going to move on. Yeah. Uh, but the summer has been, you know, I think it's been joyful. Um, but it is good to have football back. Um, 
The crowd tonight, again, a talk of a lockout um, proved to be a little bit misguided. Um, 19,000 in at Princess Park was still very, very full. And um, the crowds, I think I got there at 6 o'clock, um, were already pretty lengthy. Um, but it wasn't impossible to find a seat. It was certainly a lot less claustrophobic. However, there was... You, more things to queue for than you could poke a stick at. Yeah, you could queue for you could queue for beers, you could queue for food, you could queue for the toilet, you could queue to start a queue, uh, you could queue outside, you could queue inside, you could queue everywhere. You could miss a queue, which you have done plenty of times tonight already. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just what I don't understand is why not hold this game at Eddie Had, have it ticketed, have 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 just the the reassurance to know that you know if I can't finish work at five o'clock. And dedicate this whole evening to to this mm. game. I can still get there. I know that I've got a seat. And just get rid of all the anxiety because again, one of the joys of the winter season. It's you know it's Friday night. The game's on at the G or Eddie had. Could be based in Melbourne, obviously. And you go, yeah, I'm just going to go to the game. I'll go buy the ticket now. I've got a seat, and there's no there's no stress about it. Mm-hmm. You know the queues are manageable, but they are still there, and it just becomes a bit more of an enjoyable evening. Whereas this one was kind of like you know it's the opening set of a four day festival. Yeah, and, and there are, just yeah, spend all your time just walking around. So there are concrete jungles, and then there are concrete jungles. And for every fallback of Eddie had, um, Princess Park is still, to be honest, you know, lapsing somewhere in the nineteen nineties around my birth year. As much as I enjoy the the venue and the the suburban feel, I can't help but feel that it would be a little bit easier. Um, in a bigger stadium. Um, that said, I was there at six, and getting there early did give me a plenty of opportunity to observe the crew of Carlton hipsters and assorted other personalities that had, you know, decided to trek down to Princess Park uh, to watch the footy, which is which is enjoyable. I think I quite like the the vibe of AFLW matches, probably more so than AFL matches. I think the overarching emotion in an AFL game is that of angst and and anger. There's lots of there's just lots of like getting angry at the opposition, getting angry at the umpire. There's, there was enough, you know, shouting at the umpire and saying that they're an idiot tonight, but it wasn't that real macho bollocks you get at an mm-hmm. AFL game. Whereas this, I think it almost goes the other way. It, it's very jovial, it's very kind of open and inviting, mm-hmm. but I think there is it, it misses that edge of being a competitive event and more of being a spectacle or yeah. like a, an exhibition or something like that. Yeah, it's become the thing to go to because you want to be seen there and I don't necessarily think that that's a terrible thing but as we sort of observed uh, as the evening rolled on a little bit um, there was some pretty even in, sorry pretty interesting crowd chatter that we'll we'll get to but um, that said the the woman on the end of our row who I must say I got there at 6.30 and she was already three tinnies down um, she was a certified champion I must say um, was still heavily involved in berating the umpires in and cheering for her team, she's obviously a mad Blues fan, and she was very happy that her her girls were up tonight. So, indeed, and favorite quote from her from the whole evening was four minutes in, and she just turns to me and goes, "It's been four minutes, and I already hate the effing umpires." And I was like, "We are at the footy, and this is glorious." Um, it was very good, and my favorite one from the the row behind us uh, probably summarized again. It was a portion of the crowd, really, but one poor girl was having the rules explained to her by a. Well, a very keen male, uh, somewhere in the depths of three-quarter time, which I thought was leaving it a little bit late. But um, they found themselves discussing uh, discussing American sorority initiations um, where they recounted someone that had been forced by their sorority into a room 
to listen to Aqua's Barbie Girl on repeat for 12 hours while blindfolded and tied up. And I've walked away from the evening and if I've taken nothing else from it, it's that my life is really not that bad. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. All right, should we talk about the actual footy? The actual footy, yes, we should. Um, Again, we've already mentioned, I think, in passing, the performance of Taylor Harris, um, who I thought was really, really good when the game was pretty hot in the first two quarters. And um, the other one really was Collingwood captain Steph Ciocci. Um, And pretty much everything she touched turned to gold. Um, I think that their first goal came from a Jochi centre clearance. Um, and pretty much everything she got her hands on went forward for Collingwood and looked threatening. Um, and when she wasn't able to get her hands on the ball in the middle of the park, they looked, you know, sort of unable to match their current opponents for cleanliness, Gordon. Yeah, definitely. I think, as you mentioned there, Taylor Harris being very influential when the game is hot kind of sums up the game pretty much to a T because the game didn't really stay hot for very long. So I think... Well, three goals, Carlton goals kicked in the first quarter, and after that, they just kind of sat on a lead. And we talked about this on the way the way home, actually. And it's it's not to be contrato or offensive, but I think you need to look at this style of football through a different lens. So if you come at it from the men's the men's game lens, we want to see high scoring. And twenty two fourteen is pretty much what you see in a quarter of football, not in a match. Yeah. But I just think because of the way it's played, and again. At this stage, there's, there's a lot more contests and there's a lot more combative moments in the game versus pure skill or t- tactic moments. There's not a lot of you know, there's not a lot of kick pass change. There's not a lot of, of that much in depth structure around the ball that really clears it out early. Unless you've got the players like Kochi who can who obviously have that vision to get the ball out into the outside channels. Yeah. And there was a few of those throughout the evening. You just have the moment of complete cleanliness from a difficult pick up. Or, you know, just that moment of, yeah, you know, a quick handball out of pack to a to a target running past and it was perfectly in sync. And when that stuff happened, it just opens the game up so much. And those moments really affected the territory enormously, which changed pretty interestingly. I think Collingwood probably had it more in their forward half in the second sort of half of the game and even the second half of the second quarter without really looking super dangerous um, on the scoreboard. And we'll kind of move to that point a little bit later on. Um, but sort of the most impressive thing about Taylor Harris's game, I think she's only had 10 disposals for the night, but she's also had three tackles. Um, and I think her ability to just put pressure on around the footy, she's a complete um, tackling machine. And I think every time she runs at someone, there was one point in the last quarter where she almost jumped over a body on the ground and threw herself in to make a tackle. And she got the girl high, but she brings an enormous amount of physical presence. And on a night where Vessio you know, struggled for the most part to get near it because it wasn't a super clean game. Um, she really was, you know, you could argue the difference early um, for the Blues. And I think that's what the where the coaching staff of each of the clubs will go to with this is that super, con- not congested, but super combative style of football where they go, every team probably has three or four really standout, clean disposals of the ball. And we want to make sure that they don't give any time to do anything with it. So they couldn't lock down Kochi, but they did lock down the rest of them in terms of Collingwood's ball, ball users, so yeah, Edwards, Lambert, Malloy. They got the opportunity to get the ball, but they didn't really, really either didn't have enough time themselves to make the right decision or didn't have anyone to kick to because of yeah. just that man-on-man style of play. So that's you're going to see lower scores as, as what we saw last year. But I think, again, it, yeah, it's probably not fair to compare this to the AFLM. 
it's probably more go, but it doesn't mean it's doesn't mean it's not a good sport to watch mm. or not a bad spectacle. I think actually, them watching them crack in, you get more of those heavy hits that are associated with like union or, or league. Absolutely. So it, it is becomes a very physical, a very, very physical spectacle, and especially with the yeah. shorter quarters, they're they're fresher for longer as well. Yeah, so it was very bruising tonight, I thought, and you kind of would do. I mean, there's no fear, and this is what stood out to me the first time I watched. AFL women's which was early last year in a practice game and it's just the, the the attack on the footy is just like second to none you can't really fault it but it did stand out to me that Malloy has had you know 20, 20 disposals 18 kicks and I reckon a lot of them would have been from the halfway line to about 10 metres into her forward 50 but always to a contest I don't I would love to know a number on how many of her kicks were actually marked because um, I doubt it would be a lot mm. if any um, and that was kind of the situation that that uh, Collingwood found themselves in for the majority of the night. After kicking the first goal, um, Carlton really looked all over them for the, the next quarter and a half, and, and that was kind of where they were able to kill the game off. Yeah. In terms of the scoring, do you think that's a problem going forward just for, just for the league in general? Um, I mean, I think that it's hard to know what you saw tonight as well. Like, in terms of the, the quality of these two teams relative to everyone else in the competition is, again, I said to you before the evening that I thought... Carlton would be right up, right up there on the, the basis of their off-season recruiting and what they already had. But, um, again, it's really difficult to tell. What I do think was really prevalent over the course of last year was that the games improved within the season, like more mm-hmm. enormously. And um, there were games where teams scored freely, and um, I think you'll see a bit of variety. You know, um, it was dry tonight, um, you know, I, but I don't necessarily think that we're going to see three goals to two all, all season. Um, what I do think is sort of prevalent is that the differences between the teams aren't that great. Um, the performances of a couple of key players can have a massive impact. So we were also talking as we left about um, the impact of the last touch rule. Um, and I guess we kind of... I don't know how many free kicks were paid. I think it was probably maybe seven or eight. Yeah. Um, but really calling it a last touch rule doesn't summarise it. It's the last disposal. Um, if the ball gets kicked to a contest on the boundary line and goes out off hands... There's no free kick paid, so when we saw you know six boundary throw-ins in the first two minutes of the game, um, it was pretty clear that what we were sort of expecting, just via the term that they'd used, wasn't wasn't going to eventuate. And it kind of confuses the issue there twofold. It, you, why introduce a rule that doesn't solve the problem that didn't exist in the first place? Like I don't think having throw-ins really affects the congestion of the game. Which seems to be the thing the AFL wants to really crack down on in all formats of. of of the game, but also, it, like if this is this is a first touching point for many people who are new to the game, and then to have this rule which is only implemented in certain situations, which you almost need a flowchart to try and work out, just it creates even more confusion around it, a sport that already has plenty of confusion within its rules. Mm-hmm. So yeah, again, it's, I think it's just a thing where they, the third point really, yeah, it, it treats it with an invalidity. So it's almost like it comes like the JLT cut where oh, we'll check on these we'll check on these rules as testers because this this league isn't isn't real, which I don't think should be the way that they treat what could be become a premium product quite quickly. Yeah, and I think it's obviously even more makes it even more difficult if we're trying to attract attract new demographics into the game. Um, you've got another thing that you've got to explain, mm. um, and I think. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really notice any, notice any massive difference in the decisions players were making. They were still kicking in more or less the same patterns they would have kicked in last season. Um, and really, a lot of the time, kicking towards the boundary wasn't a free kick because if your player competed properly for the ball and got hands on it and it was a 50-50 contest squared, you'd still get a boundary throw in. What we did see was uh, 
kicks over a forward's head that kind of missed or they got grappled up by their forward kind of can roll out of bounds and you get a free kick against you there which you thought was a little bit stiff yeah definitely and I think it just kind of changes the mindset of the, of the players as well because you want to take that aggressive kick on but then and you saw this with Collingwood in late in the fourth quarter they go if I try and take that kick on it and we miss it we give the ball back to Carlton they, they essentially can waste another 30 seconds 45 seconds before they have any real opportunity to lose the ball again so it kind of changes the intent of the player, and then it becomes it becomes almost soccer esque. Like we'll score early, like Carlton did, and then mm. we can hang on to a lead as the game progresses. So you want to you want to it's you want to create not necessarily more scoring shots, but more intent to go forward, and that's what I think it kind of misses a bit with those yeah. rules. And I think as you made the point as we were leaving, if teams get a lead in these games, that's really going to affect how the rest of the match plays out. Because if you get two, three, four, five goals up. You know, early, um, there's a very strong sense of that you can go into a mindset of where congestion becomes a good thing, a slow, bogged down game, very much like you'd see in hockey, for example, mm. um, becomes something that you'd favour and you want to play a little bit slower, keep the ball, because you know that across the time that's left, it's pretty unlikely that team is going to create enough clear cut opportunities to run you down. Um, obviously, and that's where it'll be really interesting to see because I think the best teams will be able to respond when they're two or three goals down um, and find a way through teams that are playing that negative footy. And I think, I don't know whether Carlton set out to do that tonight, but I think that them getting an early lead meant that the game was very much going to be played on their terms and it gave them the opportunity really to be pretty stress-free for the rest of the night because as much as Collingwood huffed and puffed, um, I, I don't really think that I ever felt like they were in any real danger of being overrun the Blues so um, I think it'll be an interesting thing to just watch um, in terms of how the score worms sort of play out mm. and on that that will be the case as well I think the coaches will tend towards negating tactics solely because of how the how the teams are being set up so there's no there's no team other in my opinion probably than the Bulldogs and Adelaide to an extent that have probably more than a handful of really solid standout players mm-hmm and we're saying this in the way as well that yeah tonight there's probably two on each team you go well like are already household names and you like they you know they, they're the price of admission type players but if there's only two per team that's quite easy for a, for a coach to go alright well we're ahead let's lock yeah. down on those two so yeah. I think that'll that be something that I think as the league matures and as the players do as well I think you're going to get that yeah, those deeper talents within within squads and within teams and have more of a challenge of if we lock down on X and Y players, ABC come out and, yeah. and take the game on. So. And I think it was pretty noticeable, or I think it will be noticeable, that the teams that get the most out of their top-end talent will just succeed yeah. you know, a lot more than the teams that don't. Um, because, you know, in, and this is kind of why I was so hot on Carlton moving into the year, is that those teams that have got, you know, extra girls and they topped up with Taylor Harrison... Nick Stevens and getting those two girls in, you're essentially getting probably two top 20 players in the comp. Um, and when you see that, it's very hard to not see them getting better on, on where they were. Um, and that probably showed with the Bulldogs last year with Katie Brennan missing the vast majority of the year. Um, that really, really hurt them because you can say, okay, let's take the top five, a top five player in the comp out and she's probably better than that even. Um, take that out, it makes an enormous difference to the quality of your, your side. Definitely. So based on that, how do you reckon Carlton's going to go this year? Let's, let's get into our, our hot take prediction. Our hot take. Well, I uh, going into this, I, I had Carlton really hotly tipped. And I think I said to you at the start of the night, I was thinking Carlton-Melbourne. 
grand final with the Crows and the Bulldogs close behind, uh, followed by Brisbane, Collingwood, GWS and Frio. Um, again, hard to set at eight because I think there'll be quite a few close games and the result of those close games will be really what swings the ladder. Yeah, definitely. I agree with your top four. I, I, I think the Bulldogs coming into this season underrated. They Again, they had injuries galore last season and I think purely on paper their, their depth of talent is probably the best. Mm-hmm. They, they definitely would match up very well against Adelaide at full strength. Mm-hmm. I think Adelaide just being the hunted team I think coaches will come in there. They will probably play very again negative football against them, and try and their 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 real power last year was actually being able to score quite quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think that will be there'll be more lockdown tactics against them. And I think from what you've seen in previous games that they like to be front runners. They do like that early mm-hmm. score early and then and then lead. Mm-hmm. I think if they're taken deep into games, are not quite sure their personality as a squad really suits. Yeah, keeping it calm and keeping it collected and winning from behind. And I, I kind of think um, that in terms of the Bulldogs, those injuries last year may turn out to be a blessing in disguise because their finishing position meant that they basically got two top ten picks. And as we saw, uh, we mentioned Malloy Stash, who was the leading disposal getter on the ground tonight. She's what number pick number three, but mm-hmm. also a first gamer in the AFLW. But we were talking very much about um, it's not just the amount of or your age that matters, but actually the amount of footy you've played. And you'll find that a lot of these younger girls getting drafted have you know, got a good bulk of junior footy under their belts that some of the older girls probably didn't have the opportunity to play. So as a result, if you're getting two top 10 picks into your team, you know most of those players are going to go up and become top five, top 10 players within their squads and their mm. teams. Um, and in the Bulldogs case, having two of those and particularly high in the order is going to make a huge difference, I think, to their list. Um, so again, it might have meant that last year was really difficult. It may turn out to be a blessing. Definitely. Um, I've just advocated for your from my, from tip. My own tips. Um, there so you go. Thank me for that reminder. Get on the doggies. And then I think, yeah, then it becomes a race between probably Adelaide and Melbourne for the other spot in the granny, considering, yet again, there's no mm. finals this year for, I don't know what reason, AFL. But... Um, I mean, I think that given the scope of the competition, it would be very reasonable to just have a simple first versus fourth, mm. two v three. Um, please don't bring back the, the final five. I've uh, and we'll get onto this one a little bit later. But I've actually just finished reading the coach by Ron Barassi and reading through uh, his nineteen seventy seven North Melbourne team navigating the five is just a giant head spin. Um, to be honest, hang on, how are you playing them here? They're just Anyway, it needs some pie charts and whatever. Not pie charts, but some sort of Flow charts. Chart. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm surprised that they didn't go that. Um, even a top three, you know, play 2v3 and then the winner goes through and plays the minor premier, reward the minor premier a little bit more. Um, I don't know. That's sort of, yeah, something that could have been discussed. Um, I certainly think that I would prefer to see a standalone women's grand final at the end of the year rather than have it sandwiched within round one. Um, I know that... They did get pretty good energy around it last year, but um, as the JLT came in, it tended to sort of come over the top a little bit. Yeah. Um, and the grand final reinvigorated the energy a little bit, but I think that could have been circumnavigated somewhat by just separating the two completely. Yeah, no, definitely agree. And on that, how do you think AFLX will affect the turn? Obviously, it's only for one weekend. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I... you've got AFLX, you've got JLT, you've got 
the early season games all this crossing over into the women's the women's space yeah so you've only got round one of the actual mm. um, and I'm as we've sort of discussed at various opportunities very sort of sceptical about JLT and what teams roll out and teams sort of will have a crack for a quarter here and a crack for a quarter there and you know you kind of get a bit of a lolly bag and there was sort of an epitome of that was I think Richmond played Collingwood and they were 40 they got smashed in two quarters and then smashed them in two quarters I think it was down in Mowie um but, you know, I sort of said over the course of the last two or three weeks that there's been a lot of energy around AFLX and promoting that. Um, there's been a lot of talk of it on SEN. I think I've received about a million Facebook ads, a couple of AFL members' EDMs. Um, and I really only started seeing the, the social media advertising um, and the talk of AFLW, the events cropping up on Facebook, really only started sort of Monday and Sunday. Um, after the tennis, yes. But I thought it was a little bit frustrating that, uh, AFLX kind of went earlier because AFLX is one weekend um, you're probably not going to see Dustin Martin although I think you will see some guns um, I know of one that is playing but um, yeah I, I'm just not sure that it was a product that's worthy of promoting ahead of a, our full you know eight game call it a full season if you want whatever you want to call it but we've got an eight game women's season um, that I think was probably more worthy of that publicity it's been an interesting chat there because in some circles, I feel like... So if you spend a bit of time on AFL Women's Twitter, there's been plenty of chat coming in. There's been a lot of chat about play movements, been a lot of chat about pre-season, all that kind of stuff. So I think if you live in that world, and the AFL kind of was happy with that, like last year there was this massive mm. movement to make sure that people turned out for the first one. And I think somewhat in their mind they've gone, all right, we've got that. We've got that audience. We'll target to them. So I think... In, especially when it comes down to social media targeting and, you know, SEO and all that kind of stuff. I think AFLX, again, is in that same situation as AFLW was last year where no one's seen it before. Mm. It's completely new. Mm-hmm. So let's bombard everyone. Whereas even tonight, with limited overall exposure in the lead-up to the competition, they still got 20,000 at Princess Park. So yeah. I think, yeah, what they probably need to do more of is, is actually boost not the promotion part but just the coverage in general so like you know they like the yeah. AFLW official app needs to be better and then there needs to be more legitimization of that process as opposed to going hard at the start of the season like they did last year and having it tail off it's it's a difficult one though because obviously this part of the sporting calendar is heavily congested which is one of the reasons that the AFL are so keen to get into it because obviously you've got the tennis and everything seems to life you know every commercial television program seems to arrive after the tennis if you're intermarried at first sight I know my old man is you know throffing for that one yeah but um, <laughs> it yeah and between that and the BBL as well which was obviously on tonight and it'll be interesting to see the TV ratings there's a bit of there's a bit of competition I just sort of thought it was interesting that I, I don't necessarily think the AFL should have rested on their laurels per se and just been happy with their sort of organic following of people yeah. that are already looking for that content I think they should be constantly trying to expand their horizons and access new markets and I think that they're definitely making an effort to do that now I just wonder if they wouldn't have done it earlier and what difference that would have made I said to you walking away that we had a lockout last year we didn't quite reach it this year I just would like to think that we can keep this first game in particular as a as a real well supported event I don't want to necessarily see the crowd creep down to 15 and then 10 I'm not saying that it will um, but I think, and this was sort of, it's, I've raised this a couple of times, last year the crowds in the final week of the season um, it didn't even total the 24,000 we got to the first game across all four games in round seven. So 
I think there's definitely uh, a case to be made for the need to sustain the interest better or try to at the very least. And I I think there are a number of ways they could go about doing that. Um, But it, again, it's one of those things where the overlapping of the men, I think tends to take some shine off it. Yeah. And one of those obvious ones is going to be the point of our first regular segment, the people's question. Mm. And, uh, Tonight, that is, should all these games be ticketed? So obviously we said they're like, you know, want to legitimise the competition. We want to make sure we get attendances at the games and all these sort of things. And it seems that's the easiest way to do it. So they had huge success at the New Perth Stadium. Obviously, it's the New Perth Stadium. And as uh, people have said, you can sell out anything at the New Perth Stadium, apparently. Anything. So literally anything. Um, um, Pauline Hanson rally? Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps that was mentioned. Uh, you know, left, lefties at the football, who, who would have thought um, but yeah, so do we think going forward, it's obviously not going to happen this year, but does that need to start happening and we need to start saying, well, A, you can pre-purchase. If tonight was a lockout, it is, it is a bit of a negative experience as a fan. And I think that actually could be part of the reason why there was that drop-off because you go, oh, mm. if I'm not there by mm. seven, even though the game doesn't start until quarter to eight, yeah. I'm not going to get in, so I can't make it from work. I'll just watch it on telly. Yeah, I mean, we were looking at it pretty early on and... We were really sort of worried about whether you were going to get in. Um, I mean, in terms of the ticketing question, I, I'm firmly of the belief that um, even if you are not going to charge, they should still be ticketed. Yeah. Purely, and I say that purely from a safety perspective, I think that you need to work out that if there's 23,000 tickets, well, let's advance, get, get people to sign up for those tickets in advance so people know what they're rocking up to get. And that'll avoid over, overfilling the ground, which is really what they did last year to the point that it was claustrophobic and borderline, you know, being dangerous. I think if the police had let it go any longer, it would have been, you know, a pretty significant problem. Um, but I don't think it's... And I think to steal a quote from Moneyball, and it's not taking me very long to do this, it's not really about the money as much as what the money says. And I think it'd be a big statement for people to say, you know what, yeah, okay, I'm willing to pay, even if it's 10 bucks. I'm happy to go and pay my 10 bucks to watch... And the, and the proof is that they will like mm. if you only go watch local football like not even VFL just local league football it's $15 it's worth paying for and, we, and it should be paid for yeah. and also in the sense that it's, it, that is the revenue raising model that they can take to, play, to pay these players more as well potentially and I said that to you it doesn't necessarily matter if you just say okay we'll take the gate takings up and divide them between the 40 girls that are there and they all get an even slice of the pie you know okay they might they might all get 500 bucks it depends how many tickets they sold it depends on the model I mean that's better than nothing you know and I don't necessarily think that we should be I think that there's definitely a case we made in terms of a, you know a discussion around how the players the players are paid but yeah I mean I think that's one way that you could do it um, but I mean surely there's something constructive if you raise you know grands on the, the gay teams I mean there's so many things you can do with that money Five grand to twenty local local footy club. That's gold. You mm. know, it's a massive kicker. You could use it for grassroots up. And again, I don't know how much you would take. I just think that it's worth um, acknowledging that we've got players on those fields. I would have paid to watch Taylor Harris tonight. I would have paid to watch Steph Chochi, Brianna Davy, Malloy. There's you know probably there's a handful. You know, and overall that results in a spectacle that I'd be willing to pay for. Um, and I think that's really important long term I don't know what the AFL's immediate plan is in terms of next year but I think it's something we need looking at and that is a model that obviously players are getting used to trying to compete for in general so with the last CBA with the men coming and 
arguing that last year, that was their kind of point. They were like, we put on the show, we deserve an actual set percentage of that pie. Mm. And that should flow across all, all formats. And that's kind of really my argument, and I can't see a huge... I mean, I, again, don't profess to know how much money everyone's got in their hip pocket, but I'm not sure that too many people would turn down paying, you know, five bucks for them and the three kids to get mm. in, you know, 20 bucks. I, I mean, most people are going to these games and spending that on food because they're not spending on tickets, which actually someone behind us said, oh, you get in free, so it's great. I'll buy myself dinner, you mm. know, like... Um, so yeah, I think it's something that really needs to be looked at because of what the money would say to the players. All right, and to round out, your I reckon this will be your favourite segment going forward. This is going to be my favourite segment. So I, uh, I spent the vast majority of the week uh, doing some reading about the great Ron Barassi. For anyone that hasn't sort of clocked on, it'll um, probably be quite a few of you because I'm not really that popular. But I'm making an attempt this year to read 52 books uh, in the 52 weeks of the year and I'm currently I think I've finished the seventh one and so I'm going so well that I don't even know how many I've done um, which is good because I can't count past five um, however so I've basically this week I've polished off the coach uh, by John Powers um, which I've already mentioned is about Ron Barassi and the 1977 flag very much a fly on the wall type book but also very much a Barassi book um, and I've also polished off 1970 by uh, Martin Flanagan old mate um <laughs> And shout out to Flanners. Shout out to Flanners, yes, if you're listening, Flanners. Uh, look forward to our coffee this week. Um, but yeah, it's about the 1970 grand final between the two teams that played tonight, Carlton and Collingwood. And obviously, uh, the Blues were 44 points down at half time and came back to win. And it was a grand final of some pretty amazing characters. And um, I think it really, I mean, I partly picked it up this week because it set the tone for the game tonight. Um, it's a pretty old rivalry, but uh, what really stood out for me reading both was just how different footy was in those days in terms of the scoring. And we've spoken about scoring in the women's game, but this were, these were games were in 77 and in 70. Um, you were just getting huge swings in score, like astronomical, like 30 points down here and then you'd, you know, you'd have a 60-point turnaround in a quarter. And uh, that sort of stuff just doesn't happen today. No, not at all. Those moments are quite good in the sense that it just creates that, you know, creates these memorable moments that you can write books about, you can make films about, that you can remember forever. Mm. Whereas now, you, yeah, it almost becomes this kind of robotic, professional, yeah. get the job done kind of. Yeah, and last season was a bit different in the sense that we had more swings, and also the last two seasons have been very different in the sense that they will both be the catalysts, I'm sure, for more football books as the years move by. And we've already got one about Richmond. Um, the Conrad Marsh book if you haven't read it it's the best thing since oh, Harry Potter uh, it's probably better what high praise that is um, well the Harry Potter books in the Bannister household we used to buy multiple copies um, and the Conrad Marsh just in Marshall case they changed between copies or no 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 so we all had to read it at we the same time we couldn't wait uh, could we? Okay, yeah. so you know we cost the parents the extra you know 30 large or whatever yep and um this, this book is... It wasn't quite the same, actually, because I'm now you know old enough to buy my own books, thank God. It's probably where most of my money goes. Don't listen to that, Mum. But this one, um, I lent it to Dad, and then he lent it to my little sister, and uh, I haven't got it back yet. But one of the things that's really interesting, and the Powers book, again, was intended to be about Ron Barassi, but inevitably, when you focus on a football club in a fly-on-the-wall model, the figure that you're immediately drawn to is the senior coach um, and that kind of comes out in another book by Flanners that he did in uh, 1993 on the dogs where Terry Wheeler was the coach and it's it's a contrast between the one about Barassi because Wheeler was 
a failure really the dogs didn't succeed and do what they wanted to do but um, the book in, in the end becomes an assessment of how he dealt with that situation and Conrad Marshall kind of acknowledges in his book that it's very much a book about Damien Hardwick um, I think it probably does a really good job of covering the different you know parts of the football club but there's generally a sense that there's this overseeing head and uh, the coach is totally different to that because ultimately you just kind of get this perspective that everything and everyone is only relevant as Barassi is acting upon them um, so everything is really dictated by the way he acts and we was talking sort of as we watched the start of the game um, that I don't think anyone other than Ron Barassi could coach the way that Ron Barassi coached um, because he was kind of just had this aura about him and everything he did was incredibly considered which I think is the hallmark of any good coach they know exactly how their actions at any particular moment are going to impact on the people around them but um, Barassi generally um, yelled and screamed to the point that when he wasn't yelling and screaming his players found it really disconcerting Um, so I think it'd be interesting today if someone went into a football club with his approach because I don't really know how they would go I don't think it'd succeed at all and I think you see that a little bit with the the old heads not finding ultimate success so I think right now we're, we're very much in the Alistair Clarkson model of the coaching school where you come through and you're a, you're a, you're a mm. teacher as opposed to mm. an authoritarian you mm. you come in you you become a, a players coach in the sense of you don't have to do it my way I learn your way and what's best for you and mm. I make you the best version of yourself yeah. that you can be that very collaborative two way approach whereas yeah these Shouters and yellers and screamers and berators are definitely going by my side. It is interesting as well, though, because the way the football department is structured has changed enormously from... We're really talking 1977 and 2017, which is 50 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're talking a 50-year difference in terms of those two books, um, The Coach and um, Yellow and Black. So it stands out now that really you've got your, your head of football or the person in that role who really is someone that everyone is answerable to, including the senior coach. So in Barassi's day, for example, there was a point where his fitness trainers probably wouldn't have seen the players for for four weeks, you know, um, or longer. Whereas now, if that happened at Richmond, it would be like the fitness trainer would be knocking on the door of the head of football and it would be going, well, okay, Dimmer, what are we doing? And, you know, so the way that those things are structured is far less authoritarian. and It's a really interesting contrast between eras. Mm. Um, to look at them I think the, it's, the only thing I would say is that across both um, the methodology was vastly different um, the sorry the methodology of, of coaching was very different the actual methodology of the game um, Barassi craps on about pressure a lot in every sense um, I can't imagine what he would think if he learnt of Richmond's obsession with post clearance contested ball and even contested ball didn't exist but um, there were some things that were similar, but there was an underlying factor, and it comes out at the end of the coach where Barassi genuinely did have a love and affection for his players, similar to uh, you know Damien Hardwick and Luke Beveridge. Um, and I think in some ways it leaves you with a feeling that the anger was only there as a motivator, potentially. And it's a really interesting study in whether, and I don't know if you ever get the answer, but I don't know whether you can put that anger on. Mm. Um, but again, I'm not. I'm not sure that it's clear cut. But I felt like there was a redeeming quality for Barassi, and that was that. A, his teams were incre- incredibly successful, and B, he um, did have a genuine love for his players. You mentioned they're talking about different the different types of tactics and the terms and all that kind of stuff. Have you t- speaking as this is obviously book club? We need a book for next week. 
Have you read Time and Space? I've read sections yeah. of it. Um, I haven't completed the whole thing, mainly because it. I think I got through the very historical development of the rules and had a bit of a, an issue with snoring. Yeah. Um, but no, again, a, a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, but I think it does show you that there are some things that are fundamental to footy and will always be, and there are some things that have changed, you know, for better or for worse. There's vastly different approaches to the way that they deal with these people, and it'll be an interesting one. Um, Flanders have got a book coming out, I think, in the next month or so about the Bulldogs, um, which was actually written retrospectively, but um, he said to me that it'll very much be a book about Luke Beveridge. Um, and that tends to be the way that these books, as I've said, go, you know, and I think Beveridge is similar to the Damien Hardwick Clarkson model. I mean, they were both Clarkson disciples. Um, so again, that'll be a really interesting book to add to the discussion. That, that coaching tripath of Yeah, and there aren't a lot. I mean, in, in terms of this sort of fly on the wall access, there's some, been some really good articles on AFL.com actually by Sarah Black, who's been in the, the Collingwood camp in the lead up to round one doing some features on them um, and, and their coaches as well and I haven't actually been around to reading them yet but they're sat there in the reading list just waiting for a, a free morning um, but again there's not a huge amount of literature of this type in Aussie rules this, it exists in other sports um, but again it's sort of a body of work that's going to be harder to add to because of the access you get to these clubs these days we're going to sort of um, wrap that up there I think I'll probably finish with two little quotes from uh Ron Barassi, the first one, or just actually one, but um, Barassi used to constantly uh, yell at his players that they needed to uh, show their manliness. There's uh, obviously a, a vast social and circumstantial difference between that era and this era, um, and I think if nothing else, the start of the AFLW season um, does leave you realising that that sort of viewpoint, and this is not a pot at Ron Barassi, um, because this is a vastly different time, but that sort of viewpoint is pretty anachronistic. Um, I'm sure it's not one that's commonly held today, but the women can crack in and have a red hot go. And um, I think it was really nice, even though the scoring wasn't there at Princess Park, to just see the women back um, playing footy and having a red hot go. And ultimately, that's probably, for now, I think all we should ask of them. Yeah, there, there are discussions that have around that, especially as the league develops and the players become more professional about them accepting criticism about game style and performance and that kind of thing but it's been the first two years has been like no we shouldn't delist players because you know when it's a professional environment that kind of thing and I think as they develop their skill sets and develop their professionalism and develop their just their knowledge of what it means to be an elite professional athlete in the Australian environment they'll they'll expect more of themselves and we'll be able to expect more of them as well so I think it'll be it'll be interesting to, to see how it, how it grows and we're seeing with other sports as well with the W League the WBBL being the other two major ones they've got to a point now where you can actually just have a conversation about football which is what we've predominantly tried to do tonight instead of having a conversation about social politics through the medium of, of sport mm. but you know both are good conversations to have and we've had both of them tonight so lovely Monday's experts always know what's best always tell you what you should have done Monday's experts always know what's cooking, how the game was lost and how it could have been won.